I am packing my belongings in the shawl my mother used to wear when she went to the market. And I am going from my valley. And this time, I shall never return. I am leaving behind me my 50 years of memory. Memory. Strange that the mind will forget so much of what only this moment is past. And yet hold clear and bright the memory of what happened years ago. Of men and women long since dead. Yet who shall say what is real and what is not? Can I believe my friends all gone when their voices are still a glory in my ears? No, and I will stand to say no and no again, for they remain a living truth within my mind. There is no fence nor hedge round time that is gone. You can go back and have what you like of it, if you can remember. So I can close my eyes on my valley as it is today, and it is gone, and I see it as it was when I was a boy. Green it was and possessed of the plenty of the earth. In all Wales, there was none so beautiful. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Awards Don't Matter, the podcast where uh, we take a look at the best picture winners throughout all of time. So, such a sigh there That's to so start off the episode. So excited, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> G'day! Yeah, g'day! Uh, where we where we take a look at the best picture winners throughout all the time and say, uh, do they matter or not? And uh, my name's Andrew Pierce, and I'm joined by my uh, beleaguered co-host David Giannini. Welcome! Thank you very much for joining me again to discuss uh, best picture winners. Yeah, thank you for having the guts to pronounce my name correctly. Very few people can. <laughs> So I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about this Oscars because this is, I mean, would you say this is like kind of the most famous yeah. Oscars, like it's best picture? Like this is the one people talk about. Yeah, that's why the sigh is there, right? Because this is, this is <laughs> like, this is like the Oscars that people are like, they hold it up as this and it feels like, um, you know, when the King's Speech won and, and Green Book as well, those kind of, they all kind of hold in the same kind of uh, category, but everybody kind of resents how Green was my valley, which, uh, you know, famously beat out Citizen Kane for Best Picture, directed by John Ford. And yeah, it's probably the most famous uh, Oscars around um, just because of that, because of the stature that Citizen Kane achieved years and years later. Um do you think that's kind of? Uh, do we jump in head first? Yeah, let's jump in yeah. head first. Is might it well, fair? Might... Is it fair? Should it? <laughs> is it? So is it fair that how green was my valley is treated like this? Is that? Yeah. Is that the question? Yeah. No. Um, so here's the thing. Because I kind of resent better... the Oscars for it. Like I, yeah. I resent. So here's the thing. Yeah. Citizen Kane is a much better movie than How Green Is My Valley. It's one of to me. It's one of the greatest movies ever made, and that is a the most boring fucking take you can ever have about movies, which is yeah, why hot take, we're not good job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> shocking. Which is why we're not covering citizen Kane yeah. on either this episode or our next episode, because like, honestly, if you've been a movie podcaster for more than nine minutes, you've done an episode on citizen Kane. Like it just, we all, we all know it's great. Oh, it's, it's ahead of its time. Blah, blah, blah. We all know that. But people treat how green was my Valley. Like it's the fucking worst movie ever made. Yeah. Right? Like, oh my god, I cannot believe oh this piece of shit actually want no, it's a very good movie. Right? It's a great it's not film. as good as Citizen Kane. I think it's like you know, on if you put it on like a star rating, like this is like four to four and a half stars. It's a really good film. Right? Um, it just happens to be going up against a classic of the genre that pretty much you know, except for people you show me on Letterboxd who call it like movie marinara or whatever the fuck. <laughs> Um, I would say 99% of film fans love Citizen Kane. Once they yeah. sit down and watch it, because some people avoid it because they're just like, oh, everyone says it's so good. And I've known people that did this and they finally watch it and they're like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's incredible. It really does hold up to the time. It's phenomenal. Right. But How Green Was My Valley, directed by another really talented director in John Ford, who we've talked about more than once on this podcast. This is not some shitty movie that no one should ever talk about. This is really good. It's yeah. really enjoyable. It, you know, it's a, you know, it's essentially the the story of this one family. And essentially, I wouldn't say like their rise and fall because they're a poor family, right? But it's about their kind of ups and downs. And it's really heartwarming and heartbreaking in some moments. Wonderfully acted. I would say impeccably directed. Oh, I think yeah. it's a fantastic looking film. Like this is really good. And if you haven't seen it, I think. I think in the States it's on Hulu. 
Um, so it's like readily available. Like watch this movie, please. Like it's just it's one of those that you should know something about it other than oh, beat Citizen Kane and that's such a travesty for the Oscars. This is not a bad Oscar pick for a win at all. There but are it makes sense on this list. Could be, yeah. but it's not. Yeah, it makes sense with what the Oscars had done previously. I mean, you look at You Can't Take It With You. Like, that kind of feels in the same wheelhouse Way better than that. Yeah, way oh, better. way better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's a good film. It's fine. But, like, this is much, much better. But looking back, there was no chance that Citizen Kane was ever going to win. Like, it no. is a it is a great film. Of course it is. And it's, you know, wonderfully made and all this kind of stuff. But this is the 1940s. Like, you know, they're, they're not going mm-hmm. to embrace something that's so modern and so, um, you know, about the rise and fall of one man kind of thing. That's just not what they're going to do, especially somebody who, um, you know, obviously was a, a, a pastiche of a real-life figure, but he wasn't a real-life figure. It's not Emile Zola, for example. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's like, yeah, it was never going to win. Um but I'm glad that How Green Was My Valley did win. Let's just take a look at the other nominees for a moment before we actually dig into the film, because I've watched a few of them. You've watched a few of them. Um, I watched The Maltese Falcon for the first time. Oh, which so good. That's it's so good. good. I love that movie. I was a little let down by it, though. Like, I thought it was, it's a great huh. film. Don't get me wrong. But I guess, I guess, like... This is a problem when it comes to films like this, and it comes to films like How Green Was My Valley as well, where, you know, they are—they have so much prestige or they have so much history or talk and discussion surrounding them. This is great because of this. This is important because of this. And you sit down and you watch something like The Maltese Falcon, and you're like, okay, that's really good. But then the problem is we've got decades of films that are been doing what the Maltese uh, Falcon have been doing. And that's sure, a real sure. problem, you know, because it's... So here's here's what yeah. I love about that movie getting nominated. Is this the first... I think this might be the first, like, pure genre film to get nominated for an Oscar. Like, this is noir to its core, oh, right? Yeah. This is not noir, you know, and, like, kind of masquerading as, like, a, you know, an Oscar-type film. This is, like, down in the mucky muck, yeah. you know? And it's, like bogey at his bogeyest and it's just like oh i love this like and he's wonderful in it too yeah yeah he's so good he's so perfect like honestly i would watch him just punch people for three hours in in that role i this is great i don't really i i mean i care what happens in this movie there's lots of twists and turns but even without that stuff even without that great stuff i'd be like man i just i just want to follow this guy around I, i want like nine more of these movies it's so it's even though it's dark and grimy, it's like still really fun. Mm. It like it kind of wears all that stuff on its sleeves. Like the villains are fun, the kind of anti-hero is fun. It's just a really fun movie, and it's something I wish. Like I don't wish that that won Best Picture, but I wish that the Oscars always had a movie like this in the lineup. Oh, like yeah. that one where like you know you know pompous film fans are like, how how did that get in this lineup? Like, like I want that. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe a better movie, maybe a good movie, but your point stands, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, it's weirdly kind of fun that that got nominated. Like, I wish I liked that movie so I could really get behind it. But it's like, you know, when movies like that or The Dark Knight or something gets nominated, it's always like, oh, my God, what is happening right now? Yeah. Uh, so that's that's really fun. This this year is very strange to me um, because, like, I feel like there's a lot of movies at the top that are excellent. And then there's a lot of kind of like, ah, that was okay. Like, there was a lot of movies I watched in here that were like, that was all right. Mm. I, you know, I enjoyed it, but it's not something that is going to be memorable or something that I'm going to go back to a lot. Like, Blossoms in the Dust, fine. Um, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, fine. Hold Back the Dawn, okay. But then you have stuff like, you know, you mentioned the Maltese Falcon, um, Sergeant York, The Little Foxes, a movie I'd never heard of. Really good. Loved that I, film. I loved so it. Good. It was so much fun. And we'll talk and about, you know, later we'll talk about Suspicion, yeah. which is one of my favorites. So, like, there's a lot. It's very uneven, right? Some yeah. years it's like, oh, my God, this is so stacked. And some years it's like, oh, my God, yeah, this this was good, but everything else was kind of terrible. And this is like a total mixed bag of what you're getting from these movies. 
I, I think um, with the little foxes in particular, I, I thought it was really good and it felt uh, like felt like a better version of Gone with the Wind um, to me. Yes. Like, you know, it, it dealt with the the impact of, of the Civil War in a much better way. Um, I just really liked that film a lot. I thought it was I thought it was really exceptional. Uh, and I look forward yeah, to think... watching it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same. And I, I think my whole letterbox review was so Betty Davis was just good in everything. Yeah. Like she just keeps showing <laughs> up in these movies and like, not like I'm shocked that she's good, but she's not just good. Like she is always so, so great in all of the, like basically every, and granted she was in a lot of movies and I haven't seen a lot of them, but every single Betty Davis movies I've, I've seen, even if I don't love the movie, she is always so good. And the Little Foxes is no exception to that rule. Like, she's just phenomenal throughout. And it, that's a movie that, like, honestly, I if I had to pick a movie that was going to beat Citizen Kane, I might I might like it if that one won. Like, I like, yeah. like it if that one was a little more remembered. Because I yeah. think it deserves to be seen. It's a movie, like, not only I'd never seen, but I was like, what is this? I've never even, no one's ever mentioned this one to me. <laughs> this doesn't even exist in my world. Exactly, same, yeah. I just want to shout out as well, uh, while we're talking about it, um, Patricia Collange, or Collinge, who is in The Little Foxes, and she's also in one of my favourite Hitchcock films, Shadow mm-hmm. of a Doubt. Um, and whenever she shows up, she's not, she doesn't have a very extensive film career, but whenever she shows up in something, I'm just so in awe and just love watching her on screen. She has so much vibrancy and personality. Um yeah, I, I really like the Little Foxes a lot, and yeah, same with you. If if it beat out Citizen Kane, then that'd be fine. And it's a William Wyler film as well. You know, it's good. Yep. Um, yep. But Always. it didn't beat out Citizen Kane. Uh, How Green Was no. My Valley beat out Citizen Kane, and it's important to state as well. Obviously, uh, there's no question mark at the end of that uh, statement. It's How Green Was My Valley. Or some like I, I I was practicing. How green this. was my belly? How green know. was it? How, yeah, like it's a like it's just a statement. Like it's and yeah, it's, it's oh my god, look at how green it is. It's exactly like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was you know and and as a statement, it ties up the film so perfectly because this film is about this young character Hugh, played by Roddy McDowell, uh, who's just wonderful in this film just great but the film wraps up with him basically reflecting on his life well the film opens with him reflecting on his life looking back at the 50 Mm -hmm. years that he spent in this small town and says you know look through all the trials and tribulations all the terrible things that have occurred look at all the wonderful things that i had and Mm -hmm. that look when i watch it i was just uh, i wasn't an inconsolable mess but i cried a little bit at the end of that because i just felt the emotion in this film is so overwhelming and the, the performances are so beautiful and so um, thriving and alive. Um, I, I just really like this film a lot. I, I like it as well, mostly because of the way that it actually, it feels very forward focused. And mm-hmm. again, like it's hard to, it's hard to not tie this film to Citizen Kane. It, it, it's, it's, you know, internally tied to it basically, but I don't think that's even a word, but anyway, um, but (laughs) it's like Citizen Kane is talked about for being so progressive and so, you know, future focused in the way that it's made, but Mm -hmm. how green was my valley? Yeah. The technical aspects. Yeah. But how green was my valley is so future focused in the narrative and the themes of it. It challenges so many different things. It challenges what it means to be working class. It challenges religion in a lot of different ways, in ways Mm -hmm. which I didn't expect, especially for a a Welsh town. Um, It challenges the monarchy in a lot of ways too, which I, I have my issues with that too. I mean, being an Australian, we have, we are still part of that, that whole realm. And uh, you know, it's, it's a problematic thing. And I didn't expect this film to manage to actually deal with all of those things so perfectly within sort of a two hour span. And it deals with the school system as well. It deals with being, you know, a good teacher, or a bad teacher, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it does this in these kind of vignettes that feel like if you take them out, they're, they're perfectly fine little short films and things like that. But they don't feel like vignettes when you're watching them. They feel like they're all part of a big story. But they are. Mm-hmm. They're just little pieces of Hugh's life. And I found that just so uh, un- unexpected. 
I didn't expect that uh-huh. to happen. It kind of envelops you in this narrative as it comes along. And I was really, uh-huh. really uh, quite comforted by this film. Yeah. Have yeah, you seen this yeah, before? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, so, you know, I used to have a podcast called The Podcast Directed By. We did a bunch of John Ford movies, so we we did this one. So this was a rewatch for me, and it's honestly, it's even better the second time around. Like, it just. Because you kind of know what's coming, you know the style of it. Because for me, when. When something is so pure emotionally, there is a part of me that like kind of like leans back from it. It's like, oh, this is so on the nose with the emotion, and I don't know. So it took me a while to get into it the first time mm-hmm. I watched it. But then once you buy in, you're there. So watching it the second time, I'd already bought in. Like I'm like, okay, I get to watch this again. This is going to be great. Um, and you brought up the comparison with Citizen Kane, which is kind of unavoidable. Um, and I like the fact you brought up these vignettes because uh, I would argue that Citizen Kane does the same thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. a bunch of vignettes from his yeah. life, but it it accesses emotion in a really different way. Citizen Kane is about a man who is very stunted emotionally. And the only time emotion comes out is when he's angry and when he's throwing things around. Whereas but also here, we're seeing we're seeing that narrative from other people's perspective. We don't ever get sure. to see it from Kane's perspective. Whereas we yes, always get yes. to see this from Hugh's perspective. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. no, that's fine. That's a, that's a great point. And with Hugh, that we get the perspective here, it is so, um, like, it's the emotion is on its sleeve, right? And nothing is hidden. It's not a, like, well, I have to look a certain way, I have to act a certain way because I'm, you know, I'm a powerful man. It's like, this is just the story of this young boy growing up and figuring out which way to go, how to fall in love. Um, which which like male figures to follow and to emulate as he moves through life. What are the, you know, what are the good parts of my father and the bad parts of my father? And figuring out that your father has feet of clay and that you're like, okay, he's not perfect, but he's still a good man, and I still I still want to live through him and respect him and do the right thing here. Like there is a really powerful scene in here where you know there is going to be a strike um, at this at this mine where they all work and all of his adult sons kind of stand up to him and leave the table because he's not willing to strike right Mm. and the only one who stands by him is his young son hugh mainly because he doesn't know any better right he's not working in the mine he's not there but he's you know but dad says this is what we do and you also see the journey of his father and his mother getting to a point where they do the right thing as well even though it goes against what they would see as their values you know just 10 minutes of screen time before they figure out what the right thing to do is. And honestly, one of my favorite moments in this movie is when the wife, the mother, stands up to basically the whole town, mm. um, who is, like, angry at the dad for, like, not, quote-unquote, doing the right thing at the mine. And her kind of, like, calling them out on the carpet and, you know, telling them, like, this is a good man that you're attacking, right? Like, yeah, maybe you don't like the decision he's making right now, but that's no excuse for the way that you're acting. And I basically, I will defend him till my dying breath. Yeah. So basically, come get some if you want some, but I'm not giving in, and neither is he. And it's like, whoa, this is awesome. <laughs> and I just, I love their relationship. Like, there's there's all these sequences also where there, he's deciding whether he wants to go to school or not, and he kind of is getting tutored by uh, by the priest in the neighborhood, and the mom's kind of constant comments in the back, like, ah, that's nonsense, you don't need <laughs> to learn that, you know? That stuff is really good and really genuinely funny and heartwarming, you know, and even though the entire movie is spending time with this family, you do leave the movie wanting more time with them. And that's why the end of the movie is so perfect. Mm. You get all the family, almost like it's a play. You get all the family, even the ones who have passed on in the movie, you get them all walking back and making one final appearance, like a little bit of a curtain call. And it's just like, yes, because he was remembering how wonderful his life was, how green his valley was, where he grew up. And you get to see that through his eyes as a child and as an adult looking back. And, you know, I, I also want to point out as well, uh, it, it did kind of dawn on me partway through. I was like, no, we never actually see him physically grow up in a lot of ways, but this mm. spans a lot of time. And that never mm. becomes a problem because nope. it never becomes a question of being like, well, why isn't he getting physically bigger or older or anything like that? It never becomes an issue because we see him, he's still so young and naive as well throughout yep. so much mm. of his life. Um, those performances, as you're saying, were, were absolutely perfect. Um, Sarah Allgood as as the wife is just brilliant. But I, I do so want to. Oh, she's so wonderful, you know. And and the um, 
the compassion and the tenderness that she has for um, everybody, you know, is is yeah. so is so wonderful. But the the most important thing as well, which I think is missing, uh, especially from a modern perspective, where you know. I live in suburbia. Most of us, I guess, listening to this would probably live in some kind of suburban environment or a metropolitan environment where we're disconnected from one another. We have our own, like, stayed little places, whereas this town is like this big community. People, they sing to go to work. They sing coming home. They Mm, embrace each other. There is a warmth to that which feels foreign nowadays. Like, it doesn't feel... It doesn't feel yeah. normal. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's and so it, nice and it to makes see. an impact in the movie too, right? Oh, yeah. In the beginning, everyone's happy and the mind is working and everyone has jobs. It's fine. And they're singing and they're happy. And then there's scenes later as the, like the mind is firing more and more people of these men just like trudging home in silence covered in the stuff from the mind and the soot and whatever and not interacting in that way and you feel it you feel the pain of that that this community is dying right because this community is all surrounded by the mind everyone who lives there works there so as they start to get rid of people that community starts to get siphoned off into other areas and you don't feel it anymore you don't feel that joy you don't feel that connection so that really kind of comes to fruition throughout the movie as well yeah and he you know, Hugh constantly talks about the oncoming black sludge of the coal mine mm-hmm. and the impact that that's having on the town. And and while we never properly physically yeah. see that, we get the impression of it because of those yeah, faces, you don't because need of to. that. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we don't need any big special effects or anything like that. We've got a great understanding of it all. Um, but it's so, yeah, it's so wonderfully presented that way. But I want to touch on the character of the um, the priest. Walter Pigeon and the relationship with Maureen and Hara's uh, Angerhard is... Oh, it's, One of my favorites. Like, I just... It, it's, it's an argument beautiful. I got into <laughs> with, with my co-host on a podcast directed by... I was totally in on this love story, and he, of course, was not because he has no heart. Um, <laughs> but also, like, can we just talk about how, how beautiful this couple is? Like, both of them? Like, just, It's wonderful. I mean, Maureen and Hara is just stunning as always and he also has this very like just this incredible look and stature and seizing the moment like even when he's just at the pulpit you're like you get why she's into him like immediately like there is no question and you know the fact that these two don't end up together like kills me like every time i watch it i'm just like no don't just uh and his whole his whole thing which is honorable is like i don't want you to live a poor life I want you to be comfortable. You've lived a poor life long enough. But I think he's also, of course, impacted by the gossip of the town, these gossiping townswomen, and he doesn't want to put her through that. But they are so good together. Like, the few scenes they have together, like, there's a scene, like, right before anything is happening between them, and he's like, oh, you know, basically she invites him over for dinner, and then he's like, yeah, once, you know, everyone else leaves, once the doctor leaves, all that good stuff, no problem. And and she has this moment where she smiles and then she just says oh i'll make sure they leave right away and it's just a, it's just such a pure beautiful romantic moment and every moment they spend together even when they're quote-unquote fighting when they're making the decision not to be together there is no interaction where you're not like these two belong together yeah. they should be together forever they should have you know a hundred babies they should just be together like please yeah. they're just so perfect together and it just you know, and it's a perfect encapsulation of the movie that it's not a sad movie, right? It's not a it's not designed to be a tragedy, but it is designed to be real. People die, right? People don't end up together that you want mm. to because of circumstantial things. And that is what life is like sometimes. Like you look back at your life and maybe there's a person you were really attracted to and you really worked well together. And then for some reason, either like one of you goes off to school and moves away or like, you know, you don't get along with their friends or whatever. The reason is you split up. Right. And you look back on your life and like, you know, they, they say the one that got away for a reason. That is a mm. thing that we all talk about. And this is the perfect that this is the ultimate, the one that got away. Like Angarad and Mr. Griffin should be together. And it's just like every time I watch it, this is how I know it's a great movie. Right. Because every time I watch it, because I watch it three times now, um, I still hold out that hope 
that they're yeah. going to end up together. Like I know that it's not going to happen because I, I don't, my memory's not that bad. I do remember what happens, but I'm still like, you just get swept away in this relationship and you just want so badly for these two to be together. And it's, it's so rare that a movie can do this, especially because there's no, there's not like a love triangle, right? There's not like another option. So sometimes but there, but there when there's is no a, other, it is a love triangle. Well, but yeah, but it's not romance. Yes. It's not, it's a not romance. Triangle. That's a key. She, yeah. 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 So when you have that, when you have like, okay, there's one obvious choice here, sometimes it loses its power, right? Because you're like, well, obviously we're going to root for this guy because he's not a complete piece of shit. Okay, sure. But um, even though there are no other good options, you're like, no, but even if there were other options, it doesn't matter because they're so good together. Please just go go off in the country together, go to a different town, live your life and be happy. But instead, you know, she... You know, she ends up in a comfortable, loveless marriage, uh, which is really sad because um, she's so, like, bright and energetic. And you you know that she deserves to be with someone that loves her and that she loves them. And she never really gets that. And it's yeah. really, really sad. And Maureen O'Hara, I mean, she's wonderful. Uh, she really is. But she embodies yearning so well. And mm-hmm. And Walter Pigeon also embodies contemplation so well. And that's not an easy thing to do. Oh, no, not at all. all. Because if you're staring out a window, you're staring out a window, but you've got to be staring out (laughs) a window for a reason. Hiding. Exactly. Uh And to to show that is so hard. To, you know, fill your eyes with that desire is so hard. And Walter Pigeon, Uh as he's walking along, and, you know, in the moments where Hugh is recovering and he takes him out to the field and it's just a beautiful moment, you know, trying to get him to walk and and all this kind of stuff. And you can tell that he's doing it as a selfless thing because of him being a pastor and him, uh, his role in the town. Um, But you can also tell that he's doing it as a support thing for Hugh, but then also he's doing it because it's the right thing for the Morgan family. It's the right thing for Angerhard and, that is just like it's this this complex bundle of things all working at once together. Um, but I want right. to touch on kind of the thing that I think that the enduring aspect of of this film that 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 lingers with me in my mind is that this is a film about possibility. It's a film about the possibility within everybody that that you know we have lives that we live and. We have the possibilities of doing what we could do or what we can't do and things like that. And Hugh is afforded the chance, uh, unlike his brothers who, you know, we don't get to see their upbringing, but we know that they're effectively uh, made to they're, work in they're their minds. Dumb. They're just dumb, dumb miners. You <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, they have no educational gifts. Just go off to the mine like dad. But Hugh, Hugh has a choice. He's got a choice, yeah, and he gets the choice to go to school and become a scholar. And those moments, I think, are absolutely wonderful, especially when he gets taught to, you know, how to box and how to defend himself and things like that. Uh, I, I really enjoyed those moments, but the um, the argument that he kind of instigates and, and fuels within his school and then gets Di Bondo, uh, the wonderful Di Bondo played by... Um, <laughs> Give me my favorite scene in the whole movie. Yeah, so Reese Williams. It's so great. Good morning, Mr. Jonas. Mr. Jonas. We have come to the right place indeed. <laughs> what can I do for you? A man is uh, never too old to learn, is it, Mr. Jonas? No. I was in school myself once. But no great one for knowledge. Okay, what do you want? Knowledge. How would you uh, go about taking the uh, measurement of a stick, Mr. Jonas? By its length, of course. And how would you measure a man who would use a stick on a boy, one third the size? Tell us. Now, you are good in the use of a stick, but boxing is my subject. According to the rules, lay down with the good Marquis of Queensbury. Good wrist soul. And happy I am to pass on my knowledge to you. Swatil! Swatil! Alright, get him in position now. Yes. Now, look. To make a good boxer, you must have a good uh, right hand, you see? Now, you see, that is how you will punish your man with a right and a left and put your shoulder into it with your fist. The gentleman is talking to you. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. 
Position again. Uh, could I have your attention, boys and girls? I am not accustomed to speaking in public. <laughs> Only public houses. But this! Never use. It's against the rules. Break a man's nose. Now the... I'm afraid he will never make a boxer. No aptitude for knowledge. It's such a brilliant film because it it, it is a comic scene. It really is. But it kind okay. of it kind of bubbles down to another core aspect of this film is what makes you human, what makes you a person, what makes you a genuine real person. And we see that reflected so many things time and time again in the the wealthy husband that Engerhard ends up with, who is just kind of this soulless husk of a person. We see it with mm-hmm. the deacons in the, the you know, the, the church who are so kind of overwhelmed with trying to manipulate the town through their idea of what religion should be. And then we see it through this teacher who uses a cane to basically whip a school into learning lessons without Uh actually understanding or embracing what the actual text means. And, and then we have this guy who, you know, lives his life as a boxer. He lives his life with his fists and yet he's more human than all of them because he understands Mm -hmm. what it means. He understands it. And yeah, it's comical, but it's so, it's so beautiful. And there's a scene just shortly after that, where Di Bondo is sitting with his friend and just kind of resting and the camera just lingers on him for just a mm-hmm. moment and we get a moment of reprieve with him just for no reason whatsoever but we get to see that he's a person too and yeah there's so much empathy here it's so beautiful it's so wonderful yeah. <laughs> i think i think the thing that really stands out about this movie to me the more i think about it is that it would be very easy to make this movie all big because there's a lot of big things that happen, right? Um, and he and Ford doesn't shy away from that. He doesn't like he's not trying to be subtle in these moments. He's going to show you exactly what you want, what he wants you to feel, and he does a very good job at it because he's a great director. But there's also some real subtle moments that might get lost. Um, it's something I noticed much more on the second and third time I watched it than the first. You mentioned the kind of boxing sequence. And, and one of the things I love, he teaches him to box and then he goes to school um, and then uses this skill on a kid who's picking on him. Right. So he gets caught, you know, beating the crap out of this kid and then he gets caned by this teacher. And there's a moment with him and the kid he was just fighting with. He just punched him in the face and the kid just basically is there for him. And tells him to be strong through it. And now the, those two are bonded. And it's such a lovely moment. Um, that they It's not necessary. It doesn't change anything in the plot. It doesn't change where the story heads. But it is a nice moment that's like, okay, now we know we have a new problem here. We got the teacher problem. But the student problem is solved. Because now that they've had their fight and he's held his own, this kid respects him. And he, he even knows that what this teacher doing is doing is way over the top and cruel and unusual. And he's there for him in that moment. And I love that little, little moment. And, of course, then it balloons into this huge moment when Daibondo goes to the school and kicks the shit out of the teacher and gives him a lesson, him and his buddies, you know. And that is a wonderful, funny scene. But it's all couched in the defense of this boy, Right. It's not just there to like, well, let's watch this boxer, you know, punch this guy in the face. It's like, no, this guy earned it because of the way he treated a defenseless child. And so even though this guy is out of his depth when it comes to being, you know, attacked by a boxer, let's be real, it still feels okay in the the crux of the movie. It still feels like this is what should happen. This man is getting the punishment that he is owed um, by treating not only Hugh, but all these other kids like this, too, because, you know, this isn't the first time he's done this. To some kid, you know, there's a class aspect to it, of course, too, because when he first shows up, you know, they, you know, they make fun of him for being poor and being in the mines and all that good stuff. Um, But, you know, he's done this even to rich kids, too. So it's a nice moment of bonding for kind of everyone involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really wonderful. You know, this is this is a big film in a lot of ways, um, as we've talked about narratively and thematically and stuff like that. But. I I want to talk about the actual design of the town as well, because this is, uh, I don't know if it's a set or if it's a real town or not, but it feels like it could be either. (laughs) Uh, It feels like it could be, um, you know, a manufactured place, but it is so um, 
perfectly presented and so wonderfully uh, detailed and so lived in, in a way that Mm -hmm. um, we don't usually get to see in these kinds of films. Um, You know, I think of, I keep on coming back to Gone with the Wind, but I, I think of like the the manufactured hill that she stands on. And you can tell that she's just staring at a screen. Um, right. Now, of course we can tell, but it does look nice. Don't get me wrong, but here it, it is filled with so much life. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, Ford had the studio build an 80 acre authentic replica of a Welsh mining town at Brent's yeah. Crag uh, in Santa Monica mountains. Uh, so it's not even in, it's not even yeah. in the United Kingdom. It's an yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting because I was just lo- looking it up, and it always interests me, like finding out like who was supposed to direct this originally, who yeah. was going to be in it, because we have these like alternate realities where it's just a totally different movie, right? So originally, William Wyler was going to direct it on location in Wales. Lawrence Olivier, Catherine Hepburn, and Tyrone Power were all going to be in it, um, but we have this version, which was built by 150 builders over six months. So they just yeah. built it from the ground up. They built this entire town, and you would never know like if you told me this was filmed on location in wales i'd be like okay yeah it looks very real (laughs) it looks very lived in it looks very structured and it i think sometimes where movies miss is things look too nice right it look it looks like oh this is a brand new building and none of these buildings should look brand new and they don't so all the scenes with them like kind of you know opening up the fences and the fences creak and the paint is cracked and uh, they really took the time to make this a lived in set and it, like even though i know that and i'm watching it it still reads as completely real as you watch it and some of that is performance some of that's the way it's filmed but a lot of it is just the intricacy of the build of the set yeah yeah, it's really wonderful. Um, I don't know if I have much more to say about this film, though. Like, as much as I think it is a wonderful, brilliant film, I think that it's a film that, that says so much by itself. You know, it, mm. it does all the talking by itself. And that's where it comes back to, it swings back to feeling like I need to defend the film. And I, it's really sad. <laughs> like, it, it, so, I, so let me ask you a question. Yes. You don't have to say, I'm going to make you say more of <laughs> So to me, I mean, this movie's about a lot of things that we've talked about a fair amount of them. One of the other things this movie's about is nostalgia. It's, you know, canned, bottled nostalgia. It's this man looking back on his life and, you know, looking at things with, you know, the most rose-colored glasses possible for growing growing up in a small, very poor mining town. Um, what is it about this movie that makes the nostalgia palatable instead of it being sickeningly sweet? Right. Because a lot of times we watch nostalgia movies, whether it's about other media or it's about a place where we grew up and you watch it and you're like, oh, God, what a load of shit. Like, this is not, you know, this is not real. I don't feel anything about this because it's just nostalgia. Nostalgia has become a dirty word when we talk about films, like whether we're talking about, you know, Steven Spielberg's one of his worst movies. uh, You know, it's just nostalgia for the 80s, for the for the entire run of Ready Player One. Um, so what makes this stand apart? Because this is nostalgic and it is a look back. What makes this worth watching as opposed to things that come off maybe a little more hollow? It's honesty. It's It, it comes down to the honesty within it. It is the honesty of the the performances, the, the truth within their, their depictions of these characters and the truth within the depiction of the family itself. It, it is, it is a, a, it feels like an operative family unit they feel like an organic family Mm. unit the morgan family feel alive like like they have existed prior to the film starting and they will continue to exist after the film has has gone on i think you know uh, it is it is an apt comparison in a way to bring up something like ready player one because that is so obnoxiously like you remember this where you liked it here it is again you know, here's another thing. Yeah. Mm. Isn't it like that kind of thing? Whereas, and it, and it's not tied to a moment. It's not tied to a memory. It is, it is just a tchotchke. It's a toy sitting on your desk. It's Mm. a Funko pup toy. That's it. Whereas Mm -hmm. this is tied to moments. It's tied to, geez, do you remember that day where, you know, the mine collapsed and we lost dad kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. you can't be nostalgic for death in a way, but you can be nostalgic for the moment that the town was brought together because of a tragedy, or you can be nostalgic for a moment. The town was brought together for the fact that, you know, that the choir gets asked to go and sing for the queen. 
it's the specificity of those particular moments, mm. those stories that make the nostalgia feel universal. And I think that's the thing is like we look at we look at films like I look at something like uh, Pain and Glory, um, Pedro Almodovar's oh. film, which is such a beautiful film that that so is great. equally nostalgic. Oh. And yet that mm-hmm. is a film that I don't live that life at all, at all. However, there are moments in that film from both the young child's perspective and Antonio Banderas' perspective where I sit there and I go, oh, I know how that feels. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what it's like here where I can sit here and I'm not a Welsh miner. I don't coal mine at all. No. You know, (laughs) I'm sorry. I feel like I've been (laughs) lying. I know this is an audio podcast and I've been hoodwinking you all along, but I am Australian. Um, But, you know, I look at scenes in here and I go, I know how that feels. I know what that's like. And, and specifically like the scenes, I think the scenes that, that kind of hit me the most aren't major scenes at all, but there is an accident that occurs with young Hugh being laid up in bed for a long period of time. And he sits there and he has to look at the world go by and he, he sits there and he has his clothes underneath his pillow yearning for the moment when he can actually put them on and go back outside and experience the world. I've been sick for the past year, you know, I've not been well and I've spent a lot of time in bed feeling that exact same feeling. And I know what that feels like. And there's a familiarity with that with being able to go, geez, I know what that's like. And I know what that is. And I know how it feels within you. And I can relate to that. Instead of going, here is the Iron Giant. You know, it's like, (laughs) (laughs) like, (laughs) like, okay, cool. I know who that is. Yeah, no worries. I've seen that guy before. yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's why I think that's why the nostalgia works here because mm. because it is so specific and I think that's what a lot of people forget when they're delivering nostalgia it's you know it's it's that specificity it's that that feeling of you know the uniqueness of it because uniqueness is universal um, and I right. know that sounds like an oxymoron but it's the truth you know it's, yeah it's the truth. yeah and yeah. I think. I think sometimes, you know, obviously, like, you know, Ready Player One is a terrible example, right? It's it like is, so crass it... and so commercial, but it's an example of a movie that's trying to reach absolutely everyone with iconography, yeah. right? As opposed to emotion. Whereas this is like everyone has yearned for someone that they love that they mm-hmm. can't have. Everyone has grown up with you know a parent that maybe they feel like isn't terribly emotionally available but they still have a lot of respect for them and figuring that out and you know and everyone at some point has probably stood up to a parent and it's been really difficult or as a parent have had your child stand up to you or disappoint you and you having to figure out who that child is as a grown man or woman and like so all of this stuff is connected even if you were never a welsh minor you can still watch this and be like oh i know how that emotion feels i know Mm. what it feels like to be gripped by that pain um and i'm you know as i'm as we're talking like i have imdb up as always and these pictures keep floating by and like there's one particular picture of the romantic pairing in this movie mm. with her kind of staring into the into your screen and him staring off to the right and they're like disconnected in that moment and I think this is right when they're deciding to end things and like I know it's a great movie because I look at this and I am transported not just to that moment in the film but to that emotion like I look at that and I feel pain yeah. because you know exactly how that's going to end up and that takes great acting but more than that it takes like just amazing framing from John Ford. Like John Ford, obviously one of our one of our great historical directors. And I think it's easy to dismiss a director like that because well, everyone thinks it's good. Much like we talked about with Citizen Kane, where you're like, yeah, well, everyone knows it's really good. John Ford is a fantastic director. Oh yeah, not just a fantastic Western film director, but like this is straight up in some ways melodrama, right? And yet he manages to make it feel grounded and real. And I think that's what really captures the imagination here is that he's taking a big story and shrinking it down literally in this case to the smallest level, to the level of this child. And we get to see all of these interactions and how the world changes and the pain that we go through and the happiness that we go through and we get it all and none of it feels false. 
I have a question for you as well. Um, because I, I, when I think of something like How Green Was My Valley, I think back to something like Cavalcade as well, which, you know, is, is tries to... Good. Yeah. <laughs> it tries to blend that, um, that high class and the low class kind of narrative there. What is it about... I mean, it, it's so obvious. The answer is so obvious. But what is it about the fact that like high class stories, we can't have this kind of connection to this kind of high class story. We can't have that kind of um, bond to their narrative because of their wealth and success. Is that possible at all? I'm not, I'm not sure I agree that we can't. Um, I actually had this discussion with a friend of mine about Citizen Kane and the reason that that yeah, movie impacts. Because uh, that is about wealth yeah. and success. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the reason that movie impacts me, like, yes, it is a just violent takedown of a real person, right? And it's he's not painted to look good in that movie. But the more I watch that movie, the more room I find for pity. Because uh, he is a man that was never allowed to grow up, mm. to have a childhood, to feel, right? So there's a connection there, but it's a negative connection right i think it would be hard to make a movie about a high class family and feel this kind of connection where you're like i'm really rooting for them this is really great because like does money solve all your problems absolutely not it doesn't but let me tell you it would solve a lot of my problems oh yeah um (laughs) it's, it's really hard to feel bad for someone who is filthy stinking rich because most of the problems that say this welsh mining family has he could solve with the snap of his fingers right so there's no Especially if you're given this money, right? There's like no work that's being done. There's no effort that's being had and there's no growth that you Mm -hmm. can have. The only growth you get to watch in a movie about someone who is filthy, stinking rich is stunted growth, right? We see that like, oh, because he wasn't cared for when he was a child, he never really got to connect and he never really had role models. He never really got to grow. And there is a sadness in that and that hurts to watch but this is very different it's like kind of the exact opposite end of that spectrum yeah so we can have that connection with a higher class story but i don't think we can have the warmth that we get from something like how green was my valley and it's interesting as well like within how green was my valley there is that uh the father is certainly you know there's a discussion about money it is there is a discussion about like when he's giving each of the the kids you know, their their money and their, their ability to spend and stuff like that. And he's like, well, why would I save it when it's better spent? Because then you can mm-hmm. actually use it. And, yep. you know, the, the modern aspect is like, we've got to save it because, you know, something yep. might happen, you know. And this is, this is another reason why this movie really hits home for me. Like, so I lost my dad a little bit over a year ago. And this is, I don't think he's ever seen this movie. He might have, but he never certainly talked about it. But this is basically something he always said. Like, whenever I needed something, he would give it to me. Mm. And I would feel bad about it. And I'd be like, ah, you know, this is yours. This is your money. I shouldn't have any of this. And he's like, look, you're going to have it one day, right? I'm going to die someday. And you're going to have it then. So why not give it to you now when you need it and not in 15 years when you're set and you've got a well-paying job like you won't need the money then you need it now and i'm here to take care of you that's my job as a father so i watch this and i'm immediately like emotional watching this because i see my father in that man so clearly like my dad was not like a manual laborer at all he was a teacher but he was very he was a workaholic he did everything he could he would never walk away from someone who needed help um and that's exactly what this character is like and i watch this and i'm like in like like, and this is, I think, the first time I've watched it since my dad died. So this was like real. Like I watched it again. And I was like, oh man, I was not prepared for this. Yeah. And that's the thing when you lose someone really important to you, you never know what's going to flood you with memories. And How Green Was My Valley is a movie about family and a movie about, you know, in some ways, a patriarch who's, let's be honest, a little emotionally stunted. Like yep. not someone who's gonna like cry with you at the dinner table, but is gonna give you some tough love. So watching this, I immediately thought of my relationship with him and especially that sequence where all the older sons walk away from him and like the the son is there at his side and there's this beautiful little moment where the dad just goes like, I see you. I see that you're there. And that's all he has to say to let Hugh know that he loves him, that he cares about him, and that he's grateful that he's stuck by his side, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like such a efficient 
impactful moment. And it's one of the many, many things I love about this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, comparing it back to, you know, you can't take this with you again in a way. Like the father in that that film is so positive and so oh, yeah. there's it's like a there's fucking no, marshmallow man yeah, he's just there's no so... blemishes on him at all there's no blemishes right. uh, whereas here he is he is a real human because he's he has he has issues he's got failures he's got foibles he's got positives you know he's a real person because of that and that makes him all the more believable and relatable um yeah like uh yeah the, uh, there is that double question when it comes to this film, of course. You know, did it deserve to win over Citizen Kane? Well, I, I personally believe it does. I I know that Citizen Kane is a great film, right? I know it is. But in the two times that I've watched it, I can see the technical brilliance of it. But yet I, I don't find myself connecting to the narrative as much as I probably should do. And that's mostly just because that kind of story just doesn't really intrigue me all that much. Do you think you would have the same reaction if it wasn't Citizen Kane? Um, or do you think that has any impact on your view? I think of it, it does. It is, yeah. it, it, it is. I think it is it's hard really to avoid. Im- it's impossible to come to a film like Citizen Kane. And I, I came to it, you know, three years ago for the first time, three, four years ago. And so like, in my thirties. And I figured that that was probably the best time to come to it because uh, then I'd have world experience. I'd have lived up and all this kind of stuff. I, sure. I wasn't coming in as a young person going, well, this isn't, you know, the matrix. Right. Um, like <laughs> it's, <definitely> yeah, <laughs> but it's, uh, I think that when we come to those kinds of films, those, those behemoths in cinema history, so it's, hard, it's fucking hard. It is yeah. so hard. Uh, and uh-huh. what do we do? How do you deal with that? Well, you just keep on moving. <laughs> like right. you, you try. I mean, them. I think you you give it your best effort to come into it without expectations. It's impossible, but you try, right? And then I think if you don't connect to it, like what I do, like if you're a quote-unquote cinephile, like someone who really cares about film as an art form, and I separate those folks, those weirdos like me and you, from people who watch like, you know, five, ten movies a year, and they're like, I like movies. I like to be entertained. It's a different group of people, right? So people like us, I would, if I watch a movie that's very well thought of and I have a poor reaction to it, then I do a little bit of research. Like, okay, what are other people saying about it? What is it that I'm missing? And then like maybe six months later, come back to it with that in my head and see if that has an impact. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. If it does, it does. There's no rule that says you have to love Citizen Kane, right? So there are many different movies for many different people, right? There is not, there's never been a movie that everybody has liked. It hasn't ever happened. Sorry, it doesn't exist. There are people that hate It's a Wonderful Life. They are monsters, but they're terrible they people. Exist. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like, so no one is ever going to love. And frankly, the more interesting films to me are the ones that some people absolutely love and some people absolutely loathe. Those are the more interesting movies to talk about anyway. Yeah. So it's like, do I think that this should have beat Citizen Kane? No. But the more I watch it, the more glad I am that it did. Yes. Um, Yeah. Because, you know, we talk on the show all the time, and I'm just going to lead into your next question of does it matter, (laughs) right? And I think this one really does, but for a very different reason than we usually talk about. Citizen Kane was always going to be remembered, right? It is a a towering technical achievement. Um, It was wildly political, and popular in its day, it was never going to be forgotten, right? So whether it won an award or not, it's not going to be forgotten. Citizen Kane is just fine. You don't need to go to bat for Citizen Kane. Like it's thought of the, the second best film every, of all time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> on every, it's on literally every single best of list. It's there. It's going to make an appearance. So it's fine. This is a movie that I bet, and I'm one of them, a lot of people didn't know anything about this other than it beat Citizen Kane. And if that brings you to watch a wonderful, nostalgic, beautiful movie about family, then I think it matters. So I'm so glad that this ended up not only winning, but ended up winning over Citizen Kane in in particular. Like, I think it it has a much more lasting impact now than it would have. So if Citizen Kane never came out and this one... Nobody would ever talk about this for me. They'd be like, "Yeah, it's a it's a good Oscar winner, whatever." And you move well, it's on. Like, it's like but the little foxes, it's Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. it's like the little foxes. Like, I think that's a great film. 
I wish that more people would see it and seek it out, but it didn't win. And it didn't win anything. And it was, um, from what I understand, uh, you know, one of the films that basically it was nominated for a truckload of films and didn't yeah. win anything at all, um, which yep. is fine. You know, that's okay. That happens. Um, but it's, nobody talks about it. And I mm-hmm. think that's a really wonderful film. I think it's a really great film. Um, whereas you look at something like Suspicion, that was always going to have continued success because it's an Alfred Hitchcock film, right? People mm. are going to continue to seek it out because it's a Hitchcock film. Um, How Green Was My Valley could have very easily ended up being The Little Foxes. And oh, very yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I, I wish that... Um, I wish that wasn't the case, but it just, a discussion like this makes me frustrated and angry about the Oscars in a lot of ways because it breeds... Doesn't everything. It doesn't everything. Yeah. (laughs) But it breeds, it breeds that kind of antagonism. It breeds that, um, that apathy and disparaging nature between people because, there are so many people who may never have watched How Green Was My Valley, but they look at the title of it and they go, Ugh, How Green Was My Valley. Uh-huh. Well, that beat over Citizen Kane, which has a an eternally cool-sounding name. Like, Citizen Kane it is does. a cool-sounding name. Like, it's, it's a great badass. name. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yep. and it's like, just watch the film, you know, and, and treat it like its own entity. And it's a, it's times like this where I kind of wish that we could take away the whole Oscars, the the Academy Awards, and just be like, hey, just recommend a good film to somebody. You know, like, go and say, go and watch John Ford's How Green Was My Valley. Like, that's that's as simple as it should be. And I love doing this podcast. I do because it makes me look back through uh, film history in a lot of different ways. But then, yeah, I, I enter films, you know, the 14th Academy Awards, and I kind of resent them a little bit because I'm like, gosh... Yeah, you know, and, and it's a. I think it's and it's history. Note, it's history's too. done that to it. Yes. You know? Yeah. I think it's important to note. Like this is not some random win, right? This is, as we mentioned, by a great director. This is a movie that was nominated for ten awards and won five. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Supporting Actor, Black and White Cinematography, Black and White Art Direction. Yeah, and then got nominated for a bunch of others. Like this is. This is a really, really good movie. Like, at its worst, it's really good. At its best, it's really great. Like, this is not some flash in the pan, some like, oh, God, what a a weird upset that this won. Like, no, it's a really good movie. And if all you know about it is that it beat your precious Citizen Kane, just give it an honest shot, and I think you'll be rewarded by it. I agree. I don't know if I'm... (laughs) I don't know if I'm coming through or not. My cat is walking directly past the microphone, but nonetheless. Um, it says, that is enough talk. <laughs> that is enough you are talking done about now, Green is my valley. Yeah, all right. So that that's a great film. It is a really wonderful film. We're going to be discussing uh, your choice on another episode yeah, yeah. very briefly. What are we going to be discussing, Dave? Speaking of wonderful films, <laughs> we are going to be talking about Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion, my personal favorite Hitchcock movie. So I am very excited to have this discussion with you on our next episode. Cool. All right. So people can follow you at Darn That Dave on Twitter. Um, and I highly recommend as well, you just recently, um, well, not so recently by the time this comes out, but nonetheless, you recently <laughs> did your uh, top 25 films of all time, uh, which is actually, it's a long discussion. So, you know, make yourself a pot of tea and sit down and listen to it. But it's a, I quite enjoyed it, uh, mostly because Dave's yeah. uh, pick for number 25 was Ninochka, a film that we've already discussed on this show. Um, but there's a, there's a great array of films that are on that list that I think that people should really seek out and check out. Including so. Citizen Kane. So if you want to hear good <laughs> things about Citizen Kane, yes, on uh, it's through a site I work for called Talk Film Society. So they have their own podcast, the Talk Film Society podcast, and they're doing the TFS 100 right now. So they have a bunch of people talk about their top 25 movies, and then they're letting you vote on the best 100 movies of all time. So feel free to go find my episode of that or listen to my other podcasts, Offscreen Death or uh, Your List, My Command. Uh, so check those yeah, that's out. That's a new one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, brand new. Brand yeah. new. Your list pod on Twitter, so go check that out. Lots cool. of options. If for some ungodly reason you want to hear more of my voice after listening to this, you have lots of options. Yeah, I'm surprised that Audible hasn't gotten in touch with you and said, "Do you want to?" You know, 
I gotta, I gotta create my own network. I'm good to come. I'll have dozens, dozens of listeners. Come yeah. on. <laughs> and you can follow us at Awards Don't Pod on Twitter as well. Uh, we will see you on the next episode. Take care, everybody, and watch how green was my valley because it's pretty fucking green. Men like my father cannot die. They are with me still, real in memory as they were in flesh. Loving and beloved forever. How green was my valley then. Oh, oh.